This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Cordy Swope from the band Ruin. It's February 7th, 2013. Uh, we're conducting this interview at the International House in Philadelphia, and this is part of the Loud Fast Philly series. Hi, Cordy. Hi, Joseph. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I'm glad you came out to do the interview. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your upbringing, you know, where you grew up, uh, something about your, you know, your younger years and neighborhoods you grew up in? Sure. I grew, uh, actually, I was born outside of Philadelphia in uh, Bryn Mawr, western suburbs, and um, kind of spent most of, the, most of my childhood out there. Uh, moved in, outside of New York for a while when I was, I was younger, and then moved back with my mom and my sister. My father stayed in New York and sort of thus began kind of the latchkey kid upbringing. Um, and I suppose by the time I got into high school, I was sort of, no one knew what to do with me, so I got, I, like, I, I got sort of, my family wanted to take me out of public school, and they put me into this, like, horrible boys' coat and tie prep school, which I got kicked out of. But as I was getting kicked out... Um, Were you behaving poorly in this? Yeah, I was, I was not particularly, you know, fond of the, the whole, um, the whole kind of, you know, robber baron class of, of, of um, education, where we, I remember distinctly having to uh, have all of the student body gather around all boys in coat and ties and say a prayer for Chrysler uh, to, <laughs> as it was getting bailed out. So it was like that, that time. So it was kind of a... So what, what year is this? Like when This is like late 70s, like, you know, 77, like mid to late 70s. Right. So what year were you born? 62. Okay. Um, and so I, one of my, um, my music teacher actually, this crazy guy, Roman Pavlovsky, who was, um, kind of got me into Stravinsky and listening to Stockhausen, all the, like, the really, like, he was this, this very much into the avant-garde and, and all that, kind of gave me a flavor of, of, of that kind of music. Um, the sort of, you know, the bull in the china shop disrupting all the classical stuff and, and mm -hmm. you know, would tell stories about the premiere of the Rite of Spring and, and all that. And so we got, a, we got I got into kind of that, that part of it. He, on my way out of getting kicked out of the school, um, he suggested that I go to Quaker school because the Quakers sort of could tolerate anything. So if they could tolerate, you know, being burned at the stake, they could tolerate <laughs> some, some idiot right. punk kid like me. So I... Um, so as I said before, I, I commuted back and forth uh, between um, Villanova, where my uh, mother lived, and Germantown uh, Friends School, where I went to school, where I went to high school, the last two years of high school. And through that, I sort of started to hang out. I, I was playing in bands, I mean, since I, was, since I was like 11 or 12 or so. And a lot of my friends were like slightly older, so they would go to the hot club and all that. So, and and back then you could go to the hot club as like a fourteen-year-old kid, and it wasn't wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just go. I wouldn't even go to like drink alcohol. I would just go to to you know with my friend who was slightly older and go listen to bands. I don't know, there were like incredible bands there. So, so this I, is still late. This, this is, is like in, yeah, late seventies. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so um, you know, being a fourteen-year-old kid and going to clubs, that was kind of the. I mean, I don't know if that's the downfall or the or the or the great good fortune because I, I understand that that's a little bit more difficult to do or it was it, it became a lot harder to do when I you know when I started playing a lot, but um, we had I was always in bands and I was always kind of like um, you know 
reforming and deforming different bands. Now, what sort of bands were you? I mean, you know, as a younger person, you know, you say in eleven, twelve, so forth. Yeah. What, what kind of bands were you? Right. Well, I, I should go back a little bit. My parents were sort of jazz musicians, so they, they, my mom played piano, my dad played upright bass and drums, and so they were always jamming with people, having them over to our house and everything. I think someone's uh, at the door. Uh, Right, okay. uh, yeah, so my parents, having been jazz musicians, it was very normal to have people come over with saxophones, with um, you know guitars, with all kinds of different instruments, drum kits, and upright basses and things like that to our house and to play. So it was it was kind of a normal thing. And when I first started playing, there there were like these kids who all wanted to you know they were into Kiss and all like. Like heavy metal and all that shit. So, so you know, you learn like the side one of, of uh, I don't know, what rock and roll over or something like that, and you think you're really cool because you can play Detroit Rock City on the bass yeah. and do that, do, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Like, you, you know, and so, like, when you're 11, you have nothing to do. And my parents were like, yeah, sure, music, sure, great, here, here's a bass. Um, and so I took lessons in the local music shop. I took like six lessons and then I learned enough and I just didn't want to take lessons anymore. So I just started to, and then I met up with this guy named Doug who was a classmate of mine who was, um, you know, it's always like the older brother who leads you into this thing. And so he had older brothers who were like into, you know, they were sort of into like the, the Lou Reed, Bowie, Iggy, Stooges kind of thing, and and uh, you know they were they were like the total degenerates who were like of, of the town who had like the the dad was like this this um, he was like an aeronautical engineer and you know they had this gigantic house but it was like completely sort of decaying in this really really kind of elegant way and would you know we'd sit around and smoke dope and listen to the Stooges and like try to play all that stuff and and. Um, and so uh, my friend Doug and I formed uh, a couple of bands together. We played, uh, uh, I, I kind of got out of the, that whole like, you know, 11-year-old metal thing pretty quickly by the time I was about 13. And I was about 14 and playing, uh, you know, 14, 15, we'd gotten a, a couple of friends together. You know, you kind of meet the people who are all the outsiders very quickly because, you know, they all... They, you know, everyone back then, anyway, were all totally conformists. They all sort of like were, you know, trying to grow up and be something or whatever it was they were trying to be. And we, you know, you you kind of found the people pretty quickly who didn't give a shit, you know, and and banded together and and all that. So, you know, and everyone sort of had their own little take on everything. So, you know, we would play like, you know, we we connected with this one guy, um, this very dear friend of mine, Doug and, and this guy Sean are still very dear friends of mine. And he was really more into like power pop, but like weirdo, you know, stuff. Like he was into Cheap Trick, which was like a big deal for him. Uh, and and so we all kind of, you know, in Rocky Horror and playing all that stuff. And so, and it was basically sort of a journey through, through all that. And the way that it worked was that we would sit around and listen to the records with our instruments and figure out how to play all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we, then eventually, after a while, we started writing our own things and, and mixing that stuff in. So you got, you, there was a very fluid time. You just got a lot of time when you're that age, you know? And, yeah, yeah. And you don't care about football or you don't care about, you know, um, I don't know, uh, whatever people care about when they're that age. So we started playing, um, and we, we would play, like, in the high school gym at a, you know, at a, Wednesday night talent show, or we'd play it like at a party, or wherever wherever we could play, and then um, and sort of people would kind of scratch their heads and go, yeah, whatever, like 
it wasn't even because the, they couldn't even decide because we were that, just learning how to play, so we probably sounded like shit. So it was really good to be bad, like for a while, like to be to play like really badly. And it wasn't until we actually spent one summer just kind of like um, my family had gone away and for like a month and. You know, I was like 16 and we'd set up the drums, we set up all the amps and we just rehearsed every single day, like every single day. We played for like two, three hours a day, four hours a day. And it was just this rotating cast of people coming in and out of the house. And and, and finally we started to sound like something. Somebody brought a, um, <clears throat> like a, a fairly decent um, two-channel cassette tape recorder. We made a tape. These were uh, cover songs, or were these? No, like these were our own. Original songs? It was. It was the point. I mean, we would do like the odd weirdo cover, you know, something, something kind of strange, you know, like cover some lullaby and you know, play punk rock or whatever. But um, th then, uh, I, at that point, and this is like I was about seventeen or so, the, the the drummer I was playing with, who's still around, this guy Dave Bass, who's like one of the most phenomenal drummers I've ever played with before or since. Um, he's still here in Philly, he plays in a blues band, um, and uh, I had a long kind of playing career with him, even before Ruin, and he used to go to the hot club a lot, so he took the tape, played it for Dave Carroll, who said, you guys are opening for the Mutants next Thursday, they're in town from San Francisco, the Mutants, holy shit, you know. So we're like completely paranoid, so we rehearse another like five or six hours, and then we go on, we play, it, and, and Dave Carroll was so wonderful, he's like, look, you guys, you guys are awesome. Uh, we were called the Ecstatics, was the name of our band. It was like, you guys are great. Just go out there, play 20, 20 minutes. That's all, all I want out of an opening band. People are here to see the mutants, you know. Uh, but but you guys are gonna you guys are gonna do really well. He gave us like a Friday night opening slot for the mutants, and we were like, holy shit. So we go out, we play, we do we we do really well. People were like applauding and going nuts and like you know, because they're all like you know amped up, and we're we're just like oh man, you know this is great. So this is at the hot club. This is at the hot club. Yeah, yeah. So. We played the Hot Club a number of times. We played with the Speedies, with the Mutants. We played with, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, we played with the Speedies a couple times. Like, we, it was always opening, you know. It was always, it was always two bands, uh, Friday and Saturday night at the Hot Club. Very simple. It wasn't like this, like, eight-band kind of extravaganza. Mm -hmm. And we would hang out there a lot. We would saw, you know, I saw Patti Smith there. I saw, like, you know, all kinds of people there. And... Um, it was a club mostly having sort of punk new wave shows oh uh, completely yeah. Okay, yeah yeah i mean there was a whole scene and you know like and and kind of publicity back then at the hot club was sort of consisted of oh well you want to you want to get your band to be big uh talk to this person and so i was like okay so i call up this woman i can't even remember her name now and she's like well you want this person on the guest list this person this person so i'd like put all these people on the guest list and then i wouldn't know who the hell they were and they would just probably just come and like drink or whatever but yeah it was kind of like that was the that was the, the that was the scene and these were all people much older than me um you know in their 20s <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, where was the club located 21st and south okay uh, and i and we befriended doug and i um and we went through it was mostly the nucleus was doug and i and then we we had a like a you know there were people who go off to college or you know we or we just like we didn't want them in the band anymore or whatever and, but it was doug and i basically doing this band called the ecstatics and dave bass this guy dave bass's drummer um and we befriended like the doorman timmy and bobby startup and dave carroll i mean those were the like the three guys who we we interacted with all the time and 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 kind of developed 
you know, good friendships with, and, and I mean, to this day, you know, but, uh, I mean, Bobby uh, is probably the only one of them I really sort of kept in touch with. Dave sort of went, I, I'm not sure what happened to Dave, and I'm definitely not sure what happened to Timmy. Is Bobby in Philadelphia? I think he's, he might be in Jersey, mm -hmm. I don't know, but he, he was around up until maybe relatively recently. He came out a couple of, for these, these um, you know, these punk ruined union things, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, but I haven't, I haven't seen Bobby in 10 years or something like that. Um, but those guys were the ones who sort of kept us connected. And I think, like, what, what was also interesting in going to shows was that, and this carried through to, like, Omni's after that, where, where I played a lot. Where was and that? Omni's was at Ninth and Market, mm -hmm. and it burned down under mysterious circumstances, you know. Um, and then to Eastside Club and the Kennel Club was that, um, the thing about Philadelphia, I think that that is that I realized in retrospect, it didn't really. I, I knew it back then, but I didn't realize the impact it had. Is that all the bands from England would come over, or bands from the West Coast, or whatever, from someplace else. You know, they would come and they would want to do their thing in New York on a Saturday night. And where do they play? You know, and they usually weren't allowed to play like you know New York. It's right that same night, so Philly was the perfect place. So as a result, we got all these, you know, all the bands you would see in New York, we'd see them the night before, or we'd, or, or open for them. So like Killing Joke, P.I.L., you know, all these bands from England who were doing interesting stuff, who were sort of like, who were kind of, you know, Susie and the Banshees, all those bands that were sort of like the quote-unquote punk scene were kind of, you know, would come over and they would play here, and, and we would get to play with them, and we would, in many ways, get to spend probably more quality time with them than had we been based in New York, because... You know, they there they have like all the press all over them. They have like all the, you know it's a big production, right? So so um, it was interesting because I really got the chance to uh, like this is leading up to being in ruin was that I had already had the chance to to see very up like very very up close like how different bands you know how they played how they managed their gear how they managed their tours how they managed their you know their like what they what they did. How they right. So you them. essentially knew how the infrastructure, the whole yeah. the process worked. Yeah. Into it. I learned it really young. I mean, I was like 17, 18 years old when I was seeing most of this stuff, and you know, and then and being friends with Bob, like someone like Bobby, or, or or you know who, you know who would like if there was a band I particularly liked. I mean, I could go, I could go like you know help out backstage or whatever. Or like if I wasn't playing, you know. So it was like it was a real like apprentice kind of atmosphere, you know. And the thing about the hot club world that I, I think, and it carried through, and this was a characteristic of like a nightclub scene, this is long before all ages, was that there was a kind of like a, there was a sense of like the older brother sort of people looking after the younger kids who were really super interested and like just give them, giving them something to do because they were just so like, you know, you, get, you go and you get blown away by stuff, you know? Yeah. And we all like had our, our moments, right? When we're fifteen, we go to a concert, and we're just blown away, right? We're just like completely, you know. For me, I mean, I think I was like fifteen, and I saw the Jam on the 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 Modern World tour, and I was just just completely like, oh my god, you know, this is what I want to be yeah. when I grow up, kind of thing. Like I couldn't couldn't stop listening to it. So so yeah, we've all had our moments like that, um, and yeah, and that and that was kind of like the early sort of days, I suppose, for me, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, did that band record your band at the time? Ecstatics, yeah, they're like six songs. I think Dave has them, he has them in his place. And, um, 
we were, we kind of, the songs that we had, we had, um, let's see, uh, the, the best version of that band was me, Doug, this guy Dave on drums, and this guy Ron Gonzalez, who was the older brother of this guy named Miguel Gonzalez, who played the sadistic exploits and, and all that. And Ron and Doug had gone to um, like alternative high school together um, at somewhere out there. And Ron was an amazing guitar player. Like he was, you know, kind of virtuoso type. He went to Berkeley School of Music and then like dropped out because he didn't want to play the guitar anymore because it was like it totally ruined it. And he started playing drums in Swans in New York. He moved down to New York and all that afterwards. But he was still playing guitar. It was like we're like the last band that he played guitar in. I, I probably like in six months of playing in a band with him, I learned more about music than like music how to play than mm -hmm. than being with anybody. And we we wrote some kind of fairly intricate stuff, but it was it was very much like it was very much uh, sort of you know post punk, but pretty like hard. It was kind of like. Buzzcocks meet pills, something like in mm -hmm. like in there, a little bit more sophisticated than just like you know, pounding it out. Um, now, in recording, was there an eye for towards release? You know, did you want to put out an EP or something? It wasn't an eye tour. I mean, there was an eye tour just documenting this stuff on a cassette so that we could listen to it and go like, oh, that sounds good, or that sounds like shit, or mm -hmm. oh, what if we did this? You know, like we just recorded everything. It was like home tapes. Yeah. There yeah. wasn't there wasn't this sense of of. Of, um, I mean, the ambition that we had back then was to simply to get good enough to play live and good enough by our own standards, you know, because our standards were actually, interestingly enough, I think that was the whole point of this going to see all these bands is that our standards were actually fairly high. Yeah, I guess we've seen seeing those like type of bands. Going to a hot club on Tuesday night and seeing Madness, you know. Was <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like, the same as like the one chord hardcore band. It's not going to necessarily. Yeah, agree. yeah, I mean, and, the, and, and that whole. So, I mean, we, we were, I, I suppose, like, we, there was a feeling of, at least for me anyway, um, that I wanted, you know, I wanted to be really tight and really solid. I really liked bands that were really tight. Like, all the English bands are really polished in a certain way, and I like that. That's what I like. I st to this day, I still like it. I, like, the sort of bands that's, that kind of, like, flail around, thrash around, I mean, the, some of them are, are, you know, if they have some other thing that's imaginative, that's fine, but I usually don't like the kind of, um, I have a really hard time with bands that are just in love with the, the idea of being on stage, I, I, and believe me, I've been on the same bill with hundreds, if not thousands of bands like that, and it just, like, I just can't listen to it, I can't look at it. I just, it's not so much the music might be good or bad, but it's just the attitude just I don't like. Um, I like bands that like work at something, that try to do subtle shit at high volume. Because high volume covers up a lot of mistakes, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And But if you can do really subtle shit at high volume, that's interesting. The Velvet Underground knew how to do that. The Stooges knew how to do that. You know, the MC5 knew how to do that. That's why people still talk about those bands, because they actually did stuff at high volume that was unique and interesting and inspiring. Rather than just simply like, because right, again, people who are going to be attuned to that, and they're going to say, oh, "I appreciate the fact that you're kind of putting something more into this." Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very elitist thing to say, but I sort of believe that even people who aren't in tune to that feel it. That's why those records still sell yeah, yeah, forty yeah. years. And after they are they making were made. music, so it should, in effect, be some form of you would music. Think, yeah, yeah, it's not like, rock. Yeah, it's like Keith Richards would always talk about the groove. Like uh, they couldn't get the groove right, and a lot of it was around the drums and the rhythm section. You know, it's like. If that's not right, and, and that takes a lot of work, um, you know, everyone talks about the singer and all that sort of thing, and that's true. That's a, a very important part, but but it's kind of like the the 
you don't have like some sort of a you know some sort of way in which the body responds to this stuff that is unique or interesting or, or, or compelling then then it's kind of like I don't know I, I just find it's a waste of 20 minutes or 30 minutes or however long it is and you know it's already challenging enough to your ears to, to you know to go into a space where people are flying around and listen on it's great and pure energy is great and I, I get nothing against it obviously but um, but I really do I, I like bands that put that take the time to really work and to work together and to and to to craft what they do um, and you can tell the difference between the ones who do that the ones who are in the process of doing that and the ones who don't mm -hmm. Now the the club scene at the time, I guess we're talking mm -hmm. you know late seventies. Um, were there issues that you were aware of, say, between L and I and the city and the clubs? I mean, were they looked at as kind of like the homes of degenerate behavior, or was Philly you know kind of more busy with other things? So, um, it's funny. Uh, it's funny back then. It was a very different. It was a very different dynamic because. Well, I can only talk about like the early 80s maybe when I was working in nightclubs kind of as a job along with, you know, both as a musician and then sometimes, you know, uh, doing sound or doing bar backing or whatever. Um, that back then it was at about, uh, I have to be careful here. Um, every night, at a, some, shortly after midnight, the cops would come in and there would be an envelope with money in it. There would be several cases of beer, there would be, and the envelope sometimes would contain all kinds of substances, party drugs. Yeah. There would be sometimes um, women, sometimes men made available to so the, the, police officers. So the club owners were, were providing all Providing the any that, kind of entertainment uh, to stay open, to stay open and to have the cops look, take a blind, you know, blind eye to whatever was going on. Um, and that was sort of like, a, a Kennel Club in particular, this was big, because it was a big um, sort of, when Kennel Club sort of revised itself, like during, during the first wave of the AIDS, um, epidemic around 82, 83, is that it, it, it was, its owners were all dying, right? And well, owners, maybe you should tell me a little bit or yeah, tell sure. about what, you know, what was the Kennel Club and how, how so, did it operate? So the Kennel Club was a, one of these, so it was, you know, in Philadelphia you have these private clubs, right, that are allowed to stay open past two o'clock, and they're, they're, they were set up, these private clubs were set up as membership clubs for people who worked in the, you know, entertainment nightclub industry. So, so bartenders, when go. bartenders are done work, where do they go? You know, so there was like all, and, and a lot of that was in, in the 70s anyway, in, in early 80s, there was a big, you know, there was like the big gay scene of like, of these clubs where you could dance like till five in the afternoon. So um, the next day or whatever it was. And, and um, these private clubs, getting a membership to them, the bar got lower and lower because these people need to blow off some steam and they want to blow off more and more steam and so um, so this whole kind of the, the, the bathhouse scene and all that sort of thing which was kennel club was called Southeast Men's Club SMC mm -hmm. um, yeah so Lee Paris who is a big 
character in this story, I suppose, uh, was the DJ, was the, the guy on XPN who kind of, who, who really made a cohesive, coherent sort of scene around playing certain types of music on the radio, um, was asked to take over the Kennel Club by their owners, by these four guys who were, who were um, kind of getting out of that whole business because they were dealing with their own health issues and because nobody was was going to this the, the into that kind of an environment anymore because of the health health risks. So um, so Lee just did what he knew how to do, which was he brought you know he he kind of brought the scene with him, and so he started spinning there and he started like booking bands and and um, and <clears throat> kind of changing the clientele. And there was this sort of weird like classic sort of Philadelphia thing is that there was this kind of strange transition between this the real gay disco you know village people thing and this like you know I don't know um, you know punk thing that was that was overlapping like for a few months and and Glenn uh, of ruin uh, one of the guitar players was the doorman there like Lee had hired him to be a doorman and and then I got hired to like do the code check. <laughs> now, how, how old are you at the time you're doing this? 19 or something. Okay, like so that. you're not even up drinking age. No, but in in those clubs, the rules didn't really apply because that, it was still like this world of like the cops coming in, getting paid yeah, off, yeah, and yeah. nobody nobody cared. But I also I had a way around it. I mean, I had there's a whole other alternative narrative here. I went up to Boston for a year to school, and I, I dropped out. But while I was up there, I. Um, in, in Massachusetts at the time, it was really easy to get, um, to have one of your friends who was of drinking age just say, oh, I lost my license, and then you go to the DMV and get your picture taken, you get a license, and then, mm -hmm. so I had a Massachusetts license back then that said I was 22, and it was, nobody, nobody cared. So I would go to Love, I would go to um, Kennel Club, I'd go to, you know, all that, you know, East Side, all, I didn't have a problem with all that. And it wasn't even an issue, I never felt like guilty or anything about it, it was just like, yeah, what the fuck, you know, here I am. Um, but that was just to work there and to, to really just sort of be involved in it in case there was a raid. Because sometimes, you know, there would be like, there would, there would always be the threat of some sort of a raid, but there was so much, I mean, the, the, the policy of these owners of the Kennel Club in particular was to just simply give the cops what they wanted. And usually what they wanted was, you know, some cash, some drugs, you know, a blowjob, whatever it was, right? Yeah. And and they'd be on their way. And then a lot of times the cops would be, you know, you, you'd get occasionally, or actually in these 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 places back then, you see a lot. I mean, the you know, you talk to Glenn about a lot of this because he has got really the stories of being a doorman. He's a big guy. Um, you know, you get people coming from wherever and like seeing drag queens going into this place or people dressed as punk rockers and they wanted to like kick the shit out of them. And then the cops would be there and then these people would be drunk or whatever and they, or they'd come in and they'd start picking a fight. And then they'd be thrown out on the street and usually there was a sort of thing with the cops since it was being, um, you know, they were being looked after. They had their like, their, those, um, those leather, I can't remember what they're called, those leather things with a piece of metal in them that swing that are like, like this oh, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. Is it, isn't, is it a truncheon or is that? No, a truncheon is a, is a, is a um, stick. This was a, this was this really, it was called, um, had a funny, it was like a, called a spatula. It was called, it was named after some like cooking okay. uh, tool, but it was like, 
those things, man, you, like the bruises and the welts that that thing could deliver, it was a teeny tiny little thing. It, was, it, would, it would swing, it was leather, but it had lead inside of it, like stitched into it. Yeah, yeah. And, it was, and they wore them on their holsters, and they would take, I, I just remember seeing some guy who just wouldn't let up, and, um, and these cops just like kicked the shit out of him. I mean, it was really like they kicked the shit out of him. And it was sort of like the cops were always like a mixture of fear and loathing. Like you didn't know what you were going to get. I mean, there were some cops who were very psycho. They were whacked out on coke all the time. You didn't know which what to expect. And this is under Rizzo, right? This is under Green by then. Okay. And then later, Good. Green was yeah. like one term. Rizzo was earlier, but Rizzo, I think. I mean, I don't. I wasn't around really much during the Rizzo thing. It was really before my time. But I mean, all those legendary stories. Yeah. Um, but the culture of the cops back then were very much, there wasn't much of a line between cops and criminals. In fact, there really wasn't one. I mean, the, all these people, they all knew each other. You know, that was the other thing. Like, the people who ran Omnis and the people who ran Kennel Club, well, people who ran Kennel Club were a little different. They were like these sort of very wealthy, gay, sort of Philadelphia movers and shakers um, at the time. And, but the people who ran like Omnis and, and, and all that, and, and to an extent Hot Club, I think they'd all gone to the same high schools as these cops, and so they all knew each other, and they all kind of, you know, they all sort of, it was an ecosystem. It wasn't yeah, just yeah. us versus them. I suppose as long as the money and the drugs are flowing to those who want yeah, them. Yeah, and it, you know, They were in the entertainment business, yeah, you know, yeah. and, that, and, and nobody really, I mean, it wasn't like this scandalous thing where, you know, somebody was going to write a, a, a expose on it. It just didn't, I guess the... I guess maybe there wasn't a 24-7 news cycle to feed mm -hmm. either or, or, or whatever, but um, yeah, the, the, it was just a very casual sort of arrangement, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose if it, if it had always been like that, then people would just assume that's, yeah. that's just the way that it goes. I mean, there's, no, there's no reason to think otherwise because you've not seen anything you know, to the contrary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, this big pressure on like Elle and I, the first time I heard that was like in 1996 when we got back together and played and like Elle and I closed um, upstairs at Nick's for like, you know, three months because of violations or something like that. We couldn't play there, we had to play someplace else. But um, we didn't really have that. I mean, there. it seems like it's just more of like a rent-seeking authority, you know, like a tax and like it seems the way the city operates now is like, They've spent a lot of money, and now they're just going after whoever has money, and they're going to try to tax them. Mm -hmm. They're either going to find them or tax them or, or get their tribute somehow. You know, right. and that's what desperate governments do in desperate situations. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose um, back then, I guess the the, the the desires were a little bit more uh, simple. Right. I guess that was fairly functional. Yeah. Uh, now, did you feel like in in late seventies when punk sort of broke in you know Britain, New York, was there any sort of um, a tangible sea change in Philadelphia? I mean, did you feel like that this, this thing was happening? Like, how did it affect the Philly music scene, something that was so kind of internationally big at the time? I mean, I think for me, being a kid in high school, that I didn't really know what the scene was before. I mean, all those p older people with, like, long hair and stuff, and, and who were, I, don't, I didn't go to any of that any of those bars, I didn't go to any of that, or any of those concerts really. Uh, I mean, I'd go see the Rolling Stones at JFK or something, but it wasn't like, that wasn't really, that was just sort of like popular culture in mm -hmm. a way, it was something else, and, yeah. and, and it was very distant and very removed, so I didn't really know what, you know, 
I didn't know what happened before because like when punk came the main thing was is that it was happening in small venues and that it was happening in venues where you could go and you could actually be right there and watch people play and you know get into it and not have to pay and stand in line and go to some like football stadium right and, right. and that was really the immediacy of it i think mm -hmm. so i didn't really have much to compare it to apart from arena rock you know right, right. And, but the obviously if you compare it to arena rock i guess to answer your question that that was the there was the immediacy of it that that changed everything and so having a venue like the hot club was like you know the lifeline because it, it wasn't just the immediacy of it i'm sure there are lots of clubs and bars that had a lot of music but one where there was a kind of a different element than everywhere else and, and, and you know I guess being someone who somehow I'm cursed with seeking out differentiation that was why I sought it out uh, because it was different because no one else was was really that into it it was still really underground and that punk never made it big in America like it was always like ridiculed or sort of looked at and like oh you know like um, that's not really rock and roll you know yeah. or I mean and you had like all this ridiculous stuff and you know I just remember watching like Tom Snyder try to interview John Lydon and you know and, and just all that that stuff and and John Lydon seeming like you know having a probably a a, a more authentic position in this whole thing than Tom Snyder and just and but I remember sort of being like this this kind of suburban kid with ordinary middle class values looking at that going yeah John Lydon's right you know this is absurd this whole this whole thing this whole like business of of music is absurd and this whole like business of popular culture is absurd the whole culture is absurd all this stuff is absurd the 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 sort of the the actual reasonable position is to it, you know is to is to cover yourself in safety pins and to wear a fuck you Pink Floyd t-shirt on and I hate Pink Floyd t-shirt and all that I mean that what you know and so it was so it was kind of like yeah that this is the, the response to how it should be and the future is going to be different and, and is some of this I'm sorry is some of this guy coming out through you I mean are you wearing you know a safety pin fuck you oh yeah 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 I mean I I got all into that you know. Uh, um, I'm not sure when when that started happening, but it was also sort of like it was more liberating. It wasn't sort of something. The thing was like the the, the impulse was always to to be like these people, and and I you know and and I guess like from a musical standpoint, I copied all the you know how they played, but how they dressed and how they acted and stuff, you know, I sort of felt like that was just my own thing. It all that did was create space for new ways of behaving or new ways of, of, of dressing or whatever, but, you know, and I would go through phases of, like, you know, wearing all black or then wearing all ripped up stuff or, like, looking like the Ramones or whatever, you know. It was all that, that whole thing, you know. A lot of my friends would just, like, adopt one thing and that was it. They would, like, fixate on, you know, being a Ramon, being the fifth Ramon or being, yeah, whatever. Did you get the feeling that you were part of like a, a significant cultural zeitgeist at the time? That this this was the thing that was happening now, you know, in these years, and that you were a part of this, you know, yeah. akin to say if someone were you know politically active in the late nineteen sixties, you know, this is this is the thing that's happening here, you know, a decade later. Do you get the feeling? Yeah, that? I think I think actually there's a, there's there's one little 
aspect to that that I would say I, I would say yes, and I would say that the 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 two at least what I understand to be true about people in the '60s, um, you know, doing nonviolent stuff or whatever, or, or, or the civil rights movement, and that which you can't really you can't compare like the motives or whatever, but but I would say that in terms of like I wasn't part of that the '60s thing, and I, it's hard for me to compare. But the thing that I I noticed from people like from their writings at the time, and when people talk about it, is that they believed the revolution was around the corner. They believed that the future was going to be different. And and I think certainly, I mean, regardless of whatever anyone else says about the punk scene, we all believed that we were creating a different future, or that the future was going to be very different, and that mainstream culture was eventually going to be different than than how it had been for us, and that we were somehow at least in a space of possibility, if not defining whatever that future was going to be. Yeah, so there's that very real sense, I think. I don't think anyone would, would have said it that way then, but that's certainly how I felt back then. Mm -hmm. And, and um, yeah, it, it, it really did feel that way. And I mean, there's, there's largely a sort of um, a very nihilistic thrust to you know the early punk scene, kind of a you know a musical scene or cultural scene in opposition to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think that that kind of gelled with the creative thrust forward? Like we are going to create something else, you know, not merely destruction, you know, not just a fuck you, the world sucks, but also a kind of moving forward with ideas to create things. Well, I, I can only answer from my own experience, and okay. that is that. I kind of, I sort of, the nihilism thing was necessary in order to kind of dismantle all of the, all of the kind of rock bullshit and cultural bullshit that had been erected since the 60s, right? And so the, the, the whole, that whole streak of nihilism of I hate Pink Floyd, you know, I don't really hate Pink Floyd, I mean, I, I mean there's some shit that's alright, but, you know, but it's kind of like all that pretentiousness and all that ponderousness and all that, yeah, and all that yeah, yeah. blind devotion, you know, it's like, I was like the Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, I just hated the people who followed them because they were just like angel dust smoking idiots, right? <laughs> right. So it was, like, it was that kind of, so the nihilism was really good for like stripping away at a lot of the pretense um, that, that I think many of us found distasteful or, or just hard to kind of like embrace. Mm -hmm. um, and and at the same time, I think personally, I, I followed like my own sort of nihilistic path when I was about 20, I suppose. Like I, I just got into like a really, you know, that, that place of like lots of drugs, lots of um, weird situations and weird scenes and weird arrangements and that sort of thing um, until I just wanted to see how far that would go. And then I, then I kind of snapped out of it. And realized that, and, and that was that coincided around the time where I started to, you know, I was living in Boston and I was in school and I had um, the bad brains used to stay in my dorm room, wow. like like HR and, and Gary and those guys and, and Daryl and Earl, dear dear guys. Yeah, really. Their room is probably still stoned from them being. <laughs> oh man, I, I mean stories the of getting getting, getting big puritanical 
Boston straight edge guy stoned with the bad brains in the back of the van. Because <laughs> they're going to go with any band. Oh man, I can. I know where all the all the skeletons are buried in that whole in the whole straight edge scene up there. But um, but the Boston thing was was cool because I was also in a band that was working all the time. I was playing every night. It was like in this rockabilly band, sort of as an extra, playing guitar and sax because I, I knew how to play sax. And, um, but um, but then I was playing in all these other bands, these side projects and stuff. And so once I started kind of getting into that music, but it was really sort of just because I was friends with these guys um, that we that then I was like, okay, I'm going to move back to Philadelphia and like just see what happens because I don't want to live in Boston any longer. And it was like, I was in this very, very I, I was, had I stayed, I probably would have gotten into a very bad space, put it that way. So I left and sort of like cut, drew a line under it and moved home. And, and that was really good because the whole nihilism thing that was good for dismantling everything, I'd gone too, I'd like ridden that wave a little too far. Mm -hmm. In, in my own personal life, and so I like kind of moved back into a space where I was like, okay, well, what's you know, what is this world of possibility that we're supposedly going to try to create, and that's where the whole like the whole alternative, um, all ages, you know, hardcore, straight edge, etc. scene started to emerge. Now you're talking about like eighty one, eighty two, eighty two is when I, I yeah, it was like eighty one. I was in Boston, and then I moved back in eighty two. Uh, and then I met Glenn shortly after that. So coming back to Philadelphia, did you feel that there had been any significant change there, like a sort of a transition towards a, a you know, a more hardcore version of punk, or or that you know that kind of like DIY all ages thing? Did you feel that that was kind of coming? It hadn't coming really hit Philadelphia. I mean, it, it was funny. I remember when it did because I was here, and and um, so one one guy I grew up with, Chuck Meehan, who you. I'm sure yeah, you know. He's on the list. Yeah, so Chuck, Chuck is a dear guy. Very funny because Chuck, Chuck and I have known each other since sixth grade. Wow. Um, and and we we actually, God, we had we've done so much weird, have so many weird intersecting experiences together. But Chuck, um, somehow I ran into him in the city when I when I just gotten back, and he was. He was kind of like, you know, he was working at some, you know, place loading some shit or doing something. And I was looking for a job. So, like, my whole thing of, like, moving back was I dropped out of college. So I was, like, looking for an apartment, a job, a band, and maybe a girlfriend. It's like I had nothing. So that was, like, my, all those were my four things. And I remember, like, just sort of when people asked me what I was doing, I said, I'm looking for these four things. <laughs> four very simple things. Right, right. And so, and, and so I talked to Chuck, and Chuck was sort of like, I don't remember, I, he hadn't formed Wide Eye yet, but he, I think he was sort of close. And then I remember not seeing him until, until like New Year's 1982-1983 when I had just met Glenn. And Chuck, Chuck had started like booking bands, like he would started to kind of like look into the whole DC thing. Because you know, we had, we had, when we talked, we, we talked about Bad Brains and all that. And, um, and then, then, I, then we lost touch for a couple of months. And then... I knew that a lot of the, like, Love, which had been a club when I was away, that I used to go to with my Massachusetts idea, had, had sort of had problems or had, or not had problems, but it sort of expanded its, its, its revenue potential by offering all ages shows. So now, where came, are they located? They're at Broad and South. Okay. And um, they, on Broad Street, I believe. And the, so they, they had this bar, and then they had this 
this really nice concert stage. And so they used to have like As Love Club, um, which was after sort of, I think it was, yeah, it was after Omni's before Eastside Club, or kind of at the same time as Eastside Club. Where was Eastside? Eastside was at Chestnut Street, 1229 Chestnut, I okay. think is the address. Um, but that was a that was like a you know that was like a real nightclub sort of thing with dancing and all that and it was like a little bit more legit. But then then, then Bobby started booking all these bands in there, but and that was going on at the same time. But that was more of like the the sort of um, you know it was more of a dance oriented thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes punk, but a lot of dance, like alternative dance and and love was like all over the place. It was it was sort of more in the spirit of. The Dave Carroll kind of thing, where I don't remember who used to book it. it was like Marty Watt or somebody like that. Um, they had like Jamal Dean Takuma one night, or they had you know the the Philly bass player, the guy who played like the you know the awesome like jazz like funkadelic sort of mm -hmm. style bass playing, who who was really awesome at the time. And then and then the next night it would be like the Fu's, and then the next night it would be. Uh, you know, some other like sort of ponderous reggae band or something, you know, it would be like all over the place, right? Yeah. Like all over the map. And then there was a, then I think, I'm not sure who took over the, the, the bookings there, but then there was like Love Hall sort of emerged and, and that was like a Sunday all ages, you know, six bands, and it was like all these like so. What makes know, it pop what, what makes bands. it Love Hall versus? I mean, like, well, the club still was going on, right? But they were having problems, I, I, and I'm not sure what the problems were. I wasn't that close to it, but they were having all these. I think they were having these problems, and then they started to have, offer all ages shows on Sunday on weekends and stuff, and those those would be packed. Like that was the place where the whole thing crystallized. Like, I remember, I remember being around New Year's 83, and I, I, I was at some party down on South Street, like like 4th Street or something, and there was, there was a live band, it was like a, some gutted warehouse where some band was playing, I, I can't remember who it was, it was somebody, it, I want to think it was some Midwestern kind of like sort of punk hardcore band, and I, I remember Chuck introducing me to Neil, whose name is, I guess, Jackal, Wadi. And Neil was this sweet kid. He was a really, really nice guy. He was one of the nicest guys. I, and I, I, to this day, I really love Wide Eye. I really do. Like I, one of my favorite bands. And Neil and I were like, we're, I think we're, we're watching these guys, and they were, they were pretty good. And we we're just like, and, and I remember we turned to each other. And we're like, man, 1983 is going to be a fucking awesome year here. And I was like, and and we were like, yeah. And and then after, shortly after that, because I, because I had already started rehearsing with Ruin, we had. They had had a band before, and then the two guys had dropped out, and so they didn't have a bass player, they didn't have a singer, they didn't have a, like, it was just Glenn and Damon, basically, and so we had been rehearsing at that point, and then Chuck booked us in the Bunny Drums space at Fifth and Columbia called Funk Dungeon, where this, that band Bunny Drums used to live and work, and they would do, like, a rent party, basically. They would just have a big party, people would pay five bucks, they'd pay their rent, yeah. That's how it worked back then. Um, and so we, he asked us if we'd be ready to play, and we're like, yeah, sure. We didn't have a, a single song together. We didn't have anything. And so we had a gig before we actually had the band together. Um, and but you had, we, you had a name, though. I mean, it was yeah, Ruin was already there, so. but we didn't have actually the personnel. We didn't have Vasco. We didn't have me. We didn't have... And so Glenn said, yeah. And well, I, just, I was just starting. I had one rehearsal with these guys. I, no, I, I don't even think I had had a rehearsal. I was just talking to Glenn. And so that's when I, you know, that moment with Neil, and then, and then we rehearsed like, you know, it was like 
typical paranoid thing. Like we had this awesome rehearsal space at the wet spot at 12th and Arch and um, that we rented for like 50 bucks a month or something. And we put all the gear in there and we just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed like hours and hours and hours at a time, just like working out all the stuff. And we were able to drag Vasco away from the band that he was in, he was in a band. I was in two bands at the time that I quit to do this. Mm -hmm. And so we, we also sort of got together. We said, all right, let's just do it and see what happens. So we did it and we played this show. And like from then on, we were just like, okay, we're not going back to the other projects. We're just going to do this. No, including the other two projects, did you feel you know, that there was, there was something in this band, even though there was, you know, so little had been done at that point, that there was some, some element that was really Yeah, it was a it. spiritual thing. Because, you know, I was coming off of this whole like heavy, really bad year. And, and you know, getting rid of the nihilism. And so, and it was just, it was in a, it was like a strange collision of personal need and, and, and I suppose professional uh, opportunity, I'll put it that way. Yeah. And, and yeah, it, it, it was, um, and it, it corresponded with get you know, talk, meeting Glenn who was like into, you know, all this Eastern religion and, and, and using that as a way to kind of focus my attention on something other than you know something else uh, that was sort of beyond the, the the mental conversation here, and that was a very that was a very good thing to do at that time. So there was a conscious, I mean, you know, from the onset. I mean, Ruin is known as the you know the Buddhist punk. Yeah, band. yeah. So from the onset, is there this this Buddhist uh, feeling you know to the band or this desire to kind of maybe in some way express that through the music or the? We language? always knew that it was. <laughs> We always knew that those things coexisted, but the extent to which they would influence one another, I don't think anyone anyone could give you a straight answer, or because simply because we don't know. That wasn't the intent. I, I'll put it that way. But I think there was the the intent was to use that practice as a way of of um, of just simply again like driving a wedge through all the bullshit that had grown up around our lives and like going into what was something pure, something important, and pure important. And in the case of Ruin, it was around the, just this particular sort of energy that we wanted to, to, to be able to work with. And so was, we, did you actually, did you, did the, a lot of you kind of discuss that, like, you know, almost as if it was a strategic plan, like we want to do this, you know, this is our, almost like a mission statement or something? No, it was, it was, like, it was more like around our lives. It was the conversation, I mean, if you talk to Glenn, you'll, you, and you'll, you'll kind of see it right away, is that he'll talk much more about one's life, mm -hmm. the individual life, or, um, you know, and it was much more, it, it's a conversation around one's individual life and the choices that you make in your life. Not even the choices, because that implies rational choice. The, the more like the, the, the stuff that exists underneath the, the, the rational mind that, that in most of, like in, in our world, we don't have a lot of opportunity to work with or to even have access to. And this was simply a way of, of doing that. So it's like, I mean, he'll, he'll, he's just as comfortable talking about Freud as he is about the Buddha, right? And, and so we would, we would have a lot of those conversations, you know, about um, phenomenology and, and Buddhism and all that. Like that didn't, it wasn't like a doctrine or a dogma or, or even a plan. It was more, it was more like, my life is fucked up. I don't have these four things. 
right, an apartment, a job, a, a band, and a girlfriend, and and the way in which I'm living, like even if I had those four things, would I even be, you know, would I would I even be satisfied with that, or would I even be feel like I'm, I'm, you know, the next four things that I would want, and the next four things, and the next four things. What does all that mean? What's all that about? Life is a lot bigger than wanting four things, um, and yet we're we're determined, we're, or we're sort of bound by those four things. So it's a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's stuff that was much larger than the band in a way. And then the band became kind of a, a, a way, I suppose, just another extension of these discussions. That's always how I've looked at it. It's not like a, a you know, it's not, a lot of people say, oh, they're going to try to convert you and join their cult. And yeah, sure, let them think that. What the fuck? I mean, it's not, you can't control what people think. And, and, and nor would I want to, you know, I just, I'd rather, I'd rather just, and, and even if people think that, that's fine, that's what they think, but our, our thing was just to simply do what we would do and just let it stand on its own. Um, and, you know, and now, like, I don't think any of us are really, I mean, we're all practicing slightly different things, or if we're, any of us are practicing any of that stuff at all, we're not practicing what we did back then. Um, we're not part of the same sort of uh, um, religious organization or anything like that. And we were all at varying degrees of that anyhow. So it, it's much more a conversation around our individual lives and, and, and how we relate to each other and you know, as, a, as, a, you know, as a group than what that was trying to do. And sure, a lot of the, that religious organization wanted us maybe to do things a certain way. But they, when you say they, organization, I mean, were you, were you attending a certain, you know, Buddhist Yeah, yeah, there's, okay, a, so there there's, was a, particular... there's a sect. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so all, all four members were... Five. Five, so were in the sect. No, not really. I mean, at different points. There were, I think everyone had had an experience with it, but not everyone were actively part of it. You know, I was, you know, I was active for a long time when I was in it, as was Glenn. But then we sort of went in and out, and then we eventually went out as we as we found other things or went. So the sect is, is aware of the fact, or at the time, was aware of the fact that you had a band. Oh yeah. And did they want you then to sort of? Well, no. They wanted us to live our lives in a certain way that we didn't want to live, and you know, as invariably, when you're in an organized religion, you're going to bump up against that. But it wasn't, I shouldn't say the sect, I would say certain individuals, because the sect in and of itself could give what a shit. What was the sect called? It was called Nishiren Shoshu. It's now called Soka Gakkai of America, they changed their name. And I mean, I don't know much about this, yeah, so, I mean, what... Um, it's a Japanese, um, it's, a, uh, it's a big thing in Japan, and it's, a, it's like a cult no. um, in Japan, or at least like it's, it's treated as that, but my experience of it was that it was not a cult in the sense that it's like you're giving up all your belongings and your individuality and all that stuff. It was definitely not about that at all. But there were people in it who sort of wanted to play out their own power trips and stuff, just as there are people in business or any That's other right. walk yeah. of life mm-hmm. who do that. So, you know, because people are people. But, um, but uh, at the time, it was a really great way to focus the conversation around life, around something larger than just music. Because that was the thing, because go back, going back to maybe the original question around when we dropped out all the other musical projects and focused on this. The reason we focused on this was because of the, at least the, in my, my view, is that I knew that after that, 
music, I, it wasn't so much I was playing a different kind of music, or because I really wasn't. And it wasn't so much as that I was like a musician anymore, because I wasn't. Music was was one instrument of expressing this kind of purity that I wanted to go after, like in art and in life. And music is one thing. Handing out like literature or weirdo little posters and stuff that we would do uh, would be another thing. Or doing weird shit with a performance, like giving people sparklers and turning out all the lights and seeing what happened. Or dressing in white. All that stuff was like all sort of interventions that were just trying to express something that was not about. It wasn't about us trying to get people to believe something or to, to, to behave. Maybe to, to, it was to challenge maybe the conventions of the, the format that we were in, like the punk format, the playing shows, the go do your sound check, and then to come back, and then da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and to like play your show and to package it and produce it and promote it and to go on tour and to make records and to do all... And we did all that shit, but, but it was kind of like we wanted to do it in a way that was... We wanted to use all that as an expression of something else, this dialogue that we had, this communion that we had as people, you know, that we were able to kind of relate to one another as people. That we're, and we are trying to create some, and, and the band was just one venue for that, I would say, you know. Because after that, I mean, after we disbanded, I didn't, you know, I had a lot of offers to play in a lot of different bands, and I could have you know, gone on and been a musician, but it was just like, there was no way that I was going to be a musician after something like that. It was just like, it was, what, what that was was sort of beyond, it, 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 it engaged my entire life, not just my musical life, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. No, no, no. It's, about, it's about as close as I've ever been able to come to describe what that was about, that relationship anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is certainly sort of unusual for any band of any time to, to have you know, such a heady and a very spiritual approach, but I think especially then and coming out of the punk scene, it must have seemed very unusual because there really wasn't that sort well, of. Well, you had Bad Brains, you had um, Crow Mags, you had you had bands that were like you had the, all the straight edge bands who like had a you know they were all searching for this kind of you know to me like all those Boston straight edge bands were like you know they're the Puritans revisited. I mean they were really trying to kind of. They're all in in some way like minor thread. Even they were trying to clear away some 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 shit that had grown around something that was pure that they loved, and 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 I think that the most successful sort of the DIY movement were those who tried to do that. You know, I mean, I I would put us in that category maybe more from an artistic point of view, not necessarily from a business point of view, but but. But there, were, but there were bands that, could, that were really good at both doing it from an artistic and a business point of view. And I, you know, I have great admiration and respect for that. I mean, there are other bands who are just sort of like, yeah, let's, uh, let's get shit-faced and play really fast. Yeah. That's great. You know, if they're good at it, great. But um, I think that that time bred a lot of these bands that were, you know, that, that period of like the early 80s where there was that pivot point away from punk and, and away from, certainly away from post-punk into this, like, you know, into this, like, quote-unquote, hardcore or um, world, was there's this, I look at it as a quest for purity somehow, mm-hmm. purity of expression, purity of something, you know, of, of just, like, putting all the shit aside, and, like, aggression is, like, one, it's, 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 like, one sort of thing that floats on the surface all the time, because, 
you have people in, you know, you, you totally imagine, like, I, I just look at a lot of the guys who come to our shows, you know, they all had, you know, they all had, like, lives where they were working in some shit minimum paid job or whatever, and they, like, dealt with people all day who were just, like, full of shit, and, you know, they were usually the smartest people in the room often, and of course they're going to be, and they're like, and they're like 20 years old. And of course they're going to be just like up to here. I know what that's like. And they're going to want to express it somehow. And maybe they don't play instruments or whatever, but they want to go and they want to commune with their friends and like go nuts. Yeah. And in that kind of situation, the, the distance between you, band and audience, you know, there's, is really, there's very little space there right any. there. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and I really liked that. That was the thing that also really attracted me to, playing in that scene was that I didn't want it to be, because this is, and this is actually one of the things that did change, I think, in the culture, at least around how groups and organizations are formed now, because I work in a lot of this area, is that there isn't this clearly defined hierarchical of like who's a leader and who's a follower, because you wouldn't have someone on stage unless someone in the pit wants them to be on stage. You wouldn't have someone in the pit unless someone is there on you know mm -hmm. it's a it's a much more of a fluid relationship than like oh I'm a rock god on stage you know because yeah. and that that was why I got so sort of fed up with bands that wanted to be that because it was like that was something from the '60s or something from before mm -hmm. you know it wasn't yeah. it was Beatlemania or whatever it was like all the worst aspects of that of the star system and I think what what the hardcore ethos if if anything kind of dismantled that that hierarchical relationship between the audience. So that's why we, we always try to do stuff. We try to think of alternative ways of, of communing with the audience, of not being set apart, but actually being of one, but still knowing that as musicians we are, obviously we're in a format, we're in a structure, we're in a business model that forces us to be apart. But that's why we, you know, that's part of how the white thing worked out really well is that yes, we're apart, but we're just reflecting. We're not, we're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to, take up space and, you know, and build monuments for ourselves. We're just trying to reflect back what's mm -hmm. going on. And you feel that Philly was pretty responsive to that? I mean, Philly is a great place to be from because it's a small enough city where everyone can get to know each other. Who And everyone is drawn from all over the place, you know, all the guys from Reading and all the guys from Jersey and all the guys from, you know, where I live, where I came from, or and all, the, all the guys from wherever. Uh, all the people, I should say, and and um, Philly's a small enough, compact enough place to where you you can everybody can kind of pretty much know who everybody is, and can you know, and and it's big enough to where you can support something like that. So there are lots of bands. I mean, there are a lot of bands who could play and could play out every night, and and you know, I I mean, I have to say, like looking back and the. You know, we operated Ruin continuously for five years in the, back then. So that's what, 83 80, to... 83 80. to 87. Like, yeah, I guess I guess it was five, 82 to 87. And um, the, the last two years of that, the last two years of that, like, I, you know, I basically was making a living writing and performing my own music, you know, as did the rest of my bandmates. And so... So you were living, you were able to live off yeah. of okay. Yeah, off of just doing a couple of shows in Philadelphia a month. Man. And and it was just very much it was it was kind of like 
we could play, we could tour, we, you know, the, we had, of course, like, more and more demands. We had a manager who wanted us to go out on tour all the time, and, you know, and we, you know, we all had, you know, life gets in the way and all that sort of thing. But, but I mean, for those two years, we were able to do that. So Philadelphia, like, why not? I mean, we, the next step would have been we would have had to move to New York for, um, for publicity reasons, because still back then, like, you know, the world is not as connected as it is now. And nobody would get off their ass and come down here and see us. We'd have to go up there and play. And we we actually were we were pretty successful when we played up there, and we had a lot of people wanting us to be up there and to do do that whole thing. And that would have been the next step, probably, had we not. We we actually had planned to do that, but um, but it it wasn't going to happen because there was going to be a whole new set of demands, I suppose. But. Um, so yeah. you recorded two records in that time, two LPs. But there, did you record EPs as well? Yeah, we were on a, um, we were on a couple of compilations. We're on like this flexi disc from Terminal Magazine. I remember in the very beginning, and we were on the Love Hall compilation mm-hmm. with like FOD and a couple of people like that. Mm-hmm. And um, we did like there were a couple of cassette compilations. We released a few like single cassette things. Um, but yeah, then we did the, the two studio albums, yeah. So you toured through the U.S.? Um, so I imagine, you know, at the, at the time, clearly pre-internet, um, what was the, the infrastructure like for touring for, you know, smaller level, independent, hardcore punk fans? I mean, it was just all who you knew and who you, who you knew who knew who you knew kind of thing. So we, um, we had... Uh, we basically had a place to stay in San Francisco, so we based ourselves out on the West Coast, out there at our friend Franklin's house, and we got a show through. I don't know who it was for. It was through this kid who was here. He was the he was the oh he was the um, the Philly scene correspondent for Maximum Rock and Roll. Was it Jesse Townley? It might have been. Okay. I don't know. Very nice guy. I remember him. I remember. I remember exactly what he looked like. And I think through him, he, he had endorsed us on a number of the scene columns, like it would write about us. And, so, and then he endorsed us to somebody out there, and we were able to get a show like in Berkeley or someplace when we went out there. And we met Tim Yohannan, and he interviewed us on air, and all that. we were like, oh. and, um, and so we played a few places, and then all of a sudden, we, it, we played one place, and then all of a sudden, People were like, "You want? You got to play here. You got to play here. You got to play here." So we wound up like we went out there and like filled our dance card within the span of like, you know, two weeks. We had one booked show, and then you sort of like doing it all on the road and mm-hmm. no cell phones, yeah, no yeah. email. It was all just simply like you you'd stop, you'd leave a bunch of messages on answering machines, you'd drive on, you'd check your messages, you'd go on, and then finally you'd have you know by the time we made it out there in three days we would have a couple more shows, and we played a few, and then we we filled up the dance card pretty much, and we played all over the Bay Area. I remember one summer and down into California, and then down to Southern California and all that, and then. Which must be great. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was yeah. great. It was Your really great. Weather, to see. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. And it was, probably a really supportive scene. Yeah, I mean, um, the Bay Area was really phenomenal. That was home for us out there, um, for sure. And that was definitely home. And we really got, I mean, we toyed with the idea of even moving out there, you know, semi permanently, or at least half time, um, because it was such a, it was a, it was such an interesting scene and very different, very different types of bands. 
very different types of attitude. It reminded me, it felt more like the hot club. It was a little bit more wide open. Mm -hmm. So like you could really mix and match with different things. And there, were, there weren't a lot of people doing a lot of interesting stuff in, in San Francisco yeah. musically. I, I felt like the East Coast was way ahead of things, uh, like as far as like the quality of some of the groups, you know, like England is always ahead of everybody, but as far as like groups being really good, mm -hmm. um, there were a few bands that could really play, but there were, there were a bunch that were just like, did you yeah. tour consistently with any particular bands, or or just kind of whoever was in the area? The no, time? we were we were going to. We we're gonna uh, before we split up. We were about to go on tour, like I mean, like a two hundred fifty gig tour with the Descendants. Yeah, and and we didn't. We wound up not doing that. Um, but no, we we would just get, you know get gigs. We played in a bunch of great venues. We played at the I Beam in San Francisco. We played in. Metro in Chicago, we opened for seven seconds. They were going west and we were going east. And I remember, yeah, I remember that show very vividly, as do some other people, which is pretty random. Uh, and we played like Minneapolis, we played, you know, all that, you know, kind of Michigan, the upper Midwest kind of stuff. Did you have any close relationships with any of the other bands of the era, <clears throat> you know, throughout the U.S.? Um, I think we all sort of, we, we played, we had, we shared management at the end with the Dead Milkmen. We played a lot of, like, they were a slightly different scene than us, but we, we really, you know, there's a lot of mutual respect and, you know, we, we got on well together because um, we were so different, I think, actually, um, and that was good because, like, you know, we played a few shows with them, but it was sort of like, you know, it was like a, very different crowds, uh, very different kind of, um, you know, very different scene. But, you know, like Rich Kaufman and Electric Love Muffin, Rich and I are very good friends. And so, like, he, we played with them a lot. Um, it was more like the Philly guys we, we knew, you know. Um, but we were not real, uh, we were of the scene, but not of it in a way. I, it's hard to describe because we didn't. We didn't hang out and kind of do other things like book shows the way Chuck did, for mm -hmm. example, or, or you know, write a fanzine or something. I mean, we were just kind of trying to make our own shit as good as we could. And so we didn't spend a lot of time kind of like making a social scene with other groups. And I think that that also, at the time, I think that probably was a political decision that we took that we didn't want to get into being a in, in a political situation because I looked at a lot of those bands like who did that and they were you know they get in the position of being like kingmakers or they get in the position of being like like they can't say something to somebody else because of whatever and we just didn't want to, I think that what wasn't in our temperament it wasn't in our makeup like we sort of just we we withdrew from that sort of socializing aspect of it, like very deliberately. That was very deliberate, I have to say. Just simply, I think, because we couldn't, we, there wasn't a lot for us to give. We just, we do our thing. I had my friends, we all had our individual friends who we all, you know, we all still to this day love and adore. And if we go, you know, and you know, I'd go out and see a show or two every now and then, but it wasn't like, yeah, when you're when you're playing it and you're working it and you're, you're playing like all the time, the last thing you want to do is go out and yeah, like so you hear see more loud music. Than, yeah, because yeah. you see all this stuff, you know, through work. I mean, you see, you know, you play, you're on the bill with these people all the time, so you know what they sound like, you know what they are, you know what everything is about. 
Um, you know what the scene is. You know that it's not going to be some. You're not going to see anything earth-shatteringly new. Yeah, the magic is essentially removed when you're the yeah. physician. So. Yeah, it's like going. You know, you ever go to a movie with a filmmaker? It's, it's yeah, they're, they're going to see parts and pieces. Oh God, it's just yeah, horrible. The and the yeah, and yeah, and it just ruins it. You know, so so I mean, you know, my girlfriend at the time would never want to go to a show with me because I, you know, I'm going to be bitching about the sound or about the, okay. you know, oh they fucked that part up or oh they played that differently or. Oh, it didn't. It was like really sloppy. Or oh, uh, yeah. Once you see guitars, I'm like shit. Or great eyes, yeah, yeah. not short. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, pick it apart. So yeah, I didn't. I don't know. Like I didn't. Wasn't really a big scene stir in that way. I, there were other people who were way more into that than I was at that point. Like because I was working in it, and so I just needed to get. I needed to like go and listen to classical music or something for a while, and not do the not that so yeah, that when yeah. I would do that I would be I would have I would be able to bring it yeah but there are some people who you know they live for that we weren't really like that mm -hmm. so band breaks up what 87 Seven. or so um, and then you reformed uh, for some reunion shows what mid 90s 96. 96 what was the impetus for reforming I think, um, well, I think we had all sort of, the big question when we broke up was like, well, can we do any, are, are we equipped now as people to be able to live in any other way? Like, can we survive on our own or are we going to be all miserable failures and, and sort of, you know, whatever. And so the, I guess sort of the, the, the what happened between that time and 87 to 96. Yeah, I guess we should go back to like what happens after the band breaks up. So I, you know, I finally finished college. Um, I traveled a lot in Europe. Um, I got a job. I went to grad school. I got a job. I moved to New York. I did, um, I worked in a, um, in the field that I wanted to work in, a creative field. And, um, and so I sort of felt like, okay, you know, there is life after ruin, and I don't need to do this. Like, I think that, I don't think we would have reformed had we felt the need to do it. You know, does that make sense? Like, like had, had, we, had we said, like, oh my God, we have to get back together because it's the only thing we know how to do. That's like, that would have been the worst reason. Like, and, and, and that was the thing, like, we, we, you can only do something like that if you can walk away from it. Yeah, because otherwise it might be a little sad. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So if you, yeah, you can or cannot do it, and, and you decide people, to do it, and everybody then, feels it, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the thing. That's why it's so difficult because you have to disentangle all the emotion from it, and and really get at what the essence is. Not not make a rational decision, but get get at what the essence of what it is and why you're doing something like that. So, so the impetus was kind of like, um, you know, the the uh, back then was simply. Um, these guys, Rick Dubrowski and Jim Lacasio of Black Hole, wanted to take the vinyl, and you know they, because Rick had been, they'd been booking a lot of shows here. They had bands come in, and they would always ask, "Where can I get a Ruin record?" Because this guy's, you know, I, I need to have their records, and they were like, "Fuck, they don't have any. It's all in vinyl, and it's all like in." Sold out and back ordered or on eBay or whatever. I have a Dutch pressing of uh, yeah, records. Yeah, that's where they, the first one was pressed in Holland. Yeah, and um, and so so he said, listen, 
can we just at least go in the studio and, and remaster the stuff, put it out on CD, we'll, you know, we'll do it through ours and, and have both albums. And so we're like, okay, that makes sense. And at that time, and it was a, it was quite with everything with us, as you know from experiences, that it's never straightforward. And at that time, one of our former managers was dying or had died. Um, we had like five different former managers who died. It's very strange. That's why did you kill? Why did you kill? Managers? What's wrong with you? I don't know. It's a very tortured thing. But these people all, through one reason or another, died well, either accidentally or taking their own lives or um, through disease, etc. So anyway, um, one of our former managers, this woman Carol Schutzbank, had the original two-inch masters of the first album. And she had died and they were there. And so we had to go through a long, protracted business with her parents, who I guess were her estate managers, with several go-betweens that we had that were mutual friends. We were finally able to, you know, kind of get a meeting and convince them that this is what we were doing and da 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 da, da would, you know, that she would have wanted it that way and they were like, okay, fine, and, you know, and we, we, we did that and then we had the other masters. So then we, we set to work on doing that and um, we just kind of um, thought, you know, and they, then Rick said, well, I think you guys, like, if we're going to do this, it would really help if you guys came and played a show or two. And at that point, we are like, okay, fine, you know, Let's just try to make it work. Let's see if we can do it. How so. dispersed to the four winds were were the a lot of you at the time? So I wasn't in Europe that then yet. I was in New York uh, with uh, as was Rich and um, and then Paul was in California. He had been playing a lot with Helios Creed and um, Glenn had Glenn was up in Boston still at Harvard. So we we rehearsed a lot in New York. Um, that was the central place that we met and Paul only came in really for the last couple of you know the week or so before the first shows and we and we really didn't know I mean we rehearsed we rehearsed a fair amount like to, to sort of work out the kinks because it took a while but then yeah then we played that we were going to play Nick's but then Ellen and I intervened until we played at Ruba Hall someplace up in Northern Illinois I think and then we played then we did get to play at Nick's and, the, and then we played at the Troc and then it was that was that was it. There was, Were you satisfied with the performances? The performances, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was. There were aspects of them that I would have, yeah, sure. There were the things we could have done differently, sure. Um, I think um, the the whole thing of like being on a bill with a lot of bands is is actually more stressful. I know that it works for some other reasons, but that was the thing we could have done differently. And then the whole business thing with the truck was like, like I mean, that was like I imagine the, the truck mob. must be a nightmare it's, it's the mafia. And, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and Rick sort of was, who we thought was on our side, appeared to be as though he was on other, he had other interests in mind business-wise. So, uh, well, uh, I, 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 all sorts I, I of things happened. I won't speak well, ill of the dead, but, you know, I, Rick is a whole other story. I mean, he I've known, known the kids since he was 13 and sort of brought him into the whole business. But um, but yeah, and, and so it was kind of like that That experience was great to have done it and drawn a line under it. And um, 
I think people really were, um, it was like the right time to do it in a way. And now, who knows? Well, you're here. Yeah. And presumably you've been practicing, right, with the band? I mean, I don't I'm going really to tomorrow, yeah. Uh, I'll see the guys tonight, uh, and um, we're going to assemble all of us. We'll be, it'll be the first time all of us will be in the same room since back then. And I think there are a lot of different ideas floating around of what we would do. We have a whole bunch of new shit that we're probably not going to, that if we played live, I don't think we would play. I think I'd rather just release it somewhere else. How has that been put together? Remotely. Okay. So, and not everyone has participated because I, a lot of people have, but, you know, different things. So it's kind of like the White Album sort of thing where everybody's sort of do a side man. So it's not optimal for collaboration, but, but we did have a bunch of ideas that we kind of threw together, and now we have a, a lot of them. And some of them are, we could play as a group, and some of them we, we might not. But I think it's more like there are a lot of people who would really like to see us live, and there's been a lot of like continual demand for that. And I suppose the, the you know, it, hey, if the Stooges can do it at their age, <laughs> and they did pretty You're well. You're looking pretty good. So, yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I think it's kind of like a we'll see thing. You know, we'll see what happens. So you're here now. You're you're practicing, but it's not as if there's something that's, that's we don't that have, we're not we're not practicing okay. toward an imminent thing right now. But there are there are a number of people who've voiced interest in, and if we do do something, they want to help us do it. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Has there been any thought about re-releasing the the records on CD? I don't know because it seems like all that stuff is now uploaded. It's free online. I mean, it's a typical musical dilemma. It's like, why would you... Well, but you're talking... That came out in, what, was it 96, right? Yeah. That CD? I would think that a 2013 remastering of it would probably sound significantly better. Yeah, Because 90s, mid-90s CD technology, you know, not you yeah. know what it would be now. True. And to make it officially available through, like, you know, iTunes and right. Amazon right. and, you know, through these other means. I'm sure people would love, like, LP repressings. Yeah. I mean, there's still just such a tremendous market for both collectors and people who want an yeah, official way the of the definitive it. version, yeah. There's a lot of, um, you know, in the last year, uh, Mediafire and some of these other places that were hosting, people were uploading these records, a mm -hmm. lot of those links were shut down. So oh, okay. a lot of the means that people would find things that were out of print are no yeah. longer valid. So mm -hmm. it actually kind of opens up the opportunity to sell them legitimately. So, you know, artist yeah. makes money and someone gets something of, you know, of substance. Yeah, I mean, like, Spotify, iTunes, the artist doesn't make anything. Unless we formed our own record company, did it ourselves, and then we still have to give up whatever, the, you know, some ungodly percentage to Apple, but whatever. I mean, it's, it's but if always you, if been you've this way. To, if you had a label, you know, an existing label, I mean, maybe this yeah. is more work than you want to put into it, but it seems to me that, yeah. like, these are really significant records that should be heard by more people, and I think that with this technology, and with this desire that people have for collectible items that, mm -hmm. you know, there's only going to be a finite number of those records that were pressed yeah. back in, you know, 1980, whatever. I think that it would be there, you know, there would be an interest for it. Yeah, I've always, I've always sort of felt like there are a couple of ideas floating around. So there's that one. There's, there's a lot, doing a live record. Um, because there was always a sense that the records never really got to what we were about live. Although Not people sure are always going to want to hear the period yeah, recording of true. the thing. Yeah, that's true. And and I don't know that, that we would, you know, the big question will be tomorrow night if we can even come close to approximating what, you know, what the sound is. I, I have a feeling that we can because we've, we've jammed uh, in smaller subsets uh, in the last couple of years. And I, I don't think that that changes much. But 
the I guess the other the other idea was um, you know the new stuff or f in interspersing a few new things, and we've been doing a lot of like we've been doing a lot of experimental shit, which probably will live on its own. You know, it's more like movie soundtrack kind of stuff. You have a little didgeridoo in there. Yeah, it's more like Tom and his electronical uh, musings, um, taking stuff and then slicing it up into, you know, collages and montages. He has this, uh, he this amazing thing on his his. Um, I mean, he's got a full on you know electronic website, SoundCloud thing where he uh, he took like. It was. Um, the I'm waiting for my man groove and put it underneath the Archie's Sugar Sugar, mm -hmm. like lockstep, same song mashup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, really, really interesting. Like as art, it's really you know, it's yeah. really good. But um, yeah, stuff like that. I mean, we we the other thing I wanted to do was like cover all of our stuff in different um, styles, like you know, French street musician version of you know some heavy song, right? Um, I don't know, just to mess around. So we've got a bunch of ideas sort of floating around. We always, like, when we get together, all that shit floats around. But, yeah, I mean, maybe we will just reissue the stuff, because people only really care about the old stuff at this point, I, I think. I mean, that's what I've been told. I think that the lot there, certainly, yeah. I would say the bulk of the people want to hear the, the old yeah. stuff. I mean, people are, I think they're always going to be curious to hear what's new, but it should be there, you know, it should yeah. be available. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, it, it's, it's a significant, one. it's very significant, cultural icon of a period that is still valid now um, and shouldn't only really be available to those who have lots of money to buy a record which is not necessarily you know the youth the youth of America right, right. Um, you know who have a better chance of knowing what this thing is now because right. they can just type a few words into their computer the, machine and it'll be yeah or the weird thing is like <laughs> the youth of Brazil we have all these people in Brazil who are super into us some that, that is a very weird thing with Bizarre. punk. I mean, I know this from yeah. lots of bands that there will be these. And Brazil. Yeah, there will be these pockets. Like my brother was in a band that was really popular in Indonesia because, like, mm -hmm. somebody got a tape, right. and that tape was copied by Viral. everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like they wound up playing in like villages. Yeah. Like literally, they're like chickens walking by, mm -hmm. and like the village elders are standing there, <laughs> and everybody loves them. You know, and they're like. <laughs> You know, they come over as these cultural ambassadors of yeah. America where they're very nice to everybody, mm -hmm. everybody loves them, and they, they get paid like nine cents to perform or something, but... Yeah, <clears throat> yeah so it's these weird pockets that uh, they mm -hmm. kind of open up. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, I guess in closing, um, you know, one of the things I'm getting at in the project is how the, the ethos, the DIY ethos, I mean, clearly you've moved through all kind of facets of this, of this mm -hmm. music thing. And now, you know, 2013, how, how, is, how do you feel that it's still in you? What do you kind of take from your experiences in that underground that music? So, um, I suppose that, you know, I've moved on into kind of this field of, uh, in my work. <laughs> what, I mean, I never asked you, what, what is your work? Yeah, my day job, so. good question. Um, uh, so, I've been working... I went to school and I got a degree in um, product design later on, a master's at Pratt in New York, and then I, I worked for Toyota for a few years out of school, kind of taking research that around people, like uh, around like 
you know, the base, most basic of which is like trend and lifestyle, right? Subcultures, looking at subcultures, and then looking at how individual people do things and, and doing it like as an anthropologist would, and then taking that and making meaning out of that in a visual three-dimensional form, like, a, like in the design of a, of a car. And then I started doing that work with all sorts of other products and services and, and you know, more digital stuff. And so now what I do is, is pretty much that. So I look at people and I help companies kind of create new products and services. Anything that's new, not stuff that they already know how to do, but stuff that they could or should or might be doing. And so the thing, it's really hard to do that because the way, the way that industries and, 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 and organizations are always set up, they're always, you know, as soon as you have an organization, it, it tries, it, it tends to perpetuate itself like a bureaucracy does or like, you know, anything that any complex organism will, will like a company, will, will try to create a kind of stasis. You know, we'll try to create a, a, you know, and that's what gets it ultimately kills it because it's the parasites in the in the in its, you know, inside that eats it up because it, everyone is interested in the same, and we all know that the world is totally out of control and everything. So I'm interested in the out of control part and figuring out how how to help companies stay relevant and meaningful. So within that context, what happens is is that the skills that you need to to deal with the, a chaotic world are, and, and, and make relevant services or products or whatever in that world are very similar skills that I honed when I was in a band because you're dealing, it's like being married, first of all it's like being married to five people mm -hmm. and then you know having a collaborative relationship where you're creating new stuff and you're actually you know performing it and supporting yourself hopefully from it or at least paying paying for it, having to pay for its own, um, from on a very basic pragmatic level. Um, and I think that had I, you know, had we like gone on and been signed to a major record label or whatever, and then that would have ended, I think we would have been, I would have been ill-equipped to do what I do now. Because the, the DIY thing was, was that, you know, it forced us to look at things very pragmatically and very realistically. Um, that I think that a hair metal band with a big ass contract to blow coke on the, you know, on the piano bench, doesn't wouldn't necessarily be equipped to do. And I actually have some friends of mine way, 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 way back in high school who were like that. They were, you know, in L.A. and they had the whole thing, and now they're like, you know, they have like big hair and and are sort of, you know, struggling. Um, so I sort of feel like it prepared me, equipped me for how the world really works. Both in terms of how you collaborate, but also how, like, what's important and what's not important. Mm -hmm. um, so that, at least, that's what I took from it, and and it was really, you know, a self, uh, a self-taught kind of um, education. I suppose it would help you in a startup. It would help you do doing anything like that, particularly managing something like that. Um, because the individual is going to need the drive to kind of see this propel this forward and kind of handle all the different yeah. aspects, which I think a lot of people are tend to be very distanced from, you know, yeah. focus on something really minute. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if you're, if you're doing an event or you're taking part in something like that, you kind of have to manipulate all of the little parts and pieces and deal with 
probably some pretty volatile individuals as well. Yep. I mean, for, for kind of the playing live aspect, that's true. For making records, it's also a very, um, there's a very meticulous aspect to making a record. And where you have to really consider every single detail, and you have to consider every single detail multiple times at different levels and stuff. And that was always a really fascinating process and a lot of fun to do. And, and I probably would still be making records now had I had GarageBand back then, you know, because now I can do stuff, you know, on my own at home. But, um, but yeah, the, the, I think that there were so, you know, that you can get into like a systemic level complex design of something, whether it's a, whether it's a band that has to operate by playing live and feeding itself and selling t-shirts and doing all that stuff. Um, writing its own music and being rele staying relevant and, and or being relevant and you know obviously putting your emotional stuff into it um, making records is a whole other process and and being able to do all that stuff and have it operate as a business and have it operate as uh, you know a, a way of life is a really great sort of background for for doing anything yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's certainly something that I want to get at. Yeah, it team. should be like, you know, rock boot camp or something. Rock. I guess there's like now a school or something like that that some guy started here. Yeah, get to that's true. Yeah. Is that uh, you? No, no, not okay. that. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that's probably. probably uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much right. for doing this. I really appreciate Anytime. it. Anytime. You know, hopefully that. I mean, I don't know if like, it, yeah, I, I, I get, I get, it was. Let me turn this in. Uh, Sorry, this was my ex-call.